what makes Christmas so special? If we had a top 10 list of things that made Christmas special, gifts and family would certainly be toward the top of the list. And we recognize that when you are young in life, like the children that we just saw on the, on the platform, gifts are probably about here on the priority scale, and family is probably about here. And the older you get, they start to slowly uh, reverse so that when you are in grandparent years, family is far and away the priority and gifts are not really as much of a priority. But let's be honest, we all love receiving gifts, don't we? I mean, it's fun to receive a gift, especially if it's a surprise. Some of us do better with surprises than others. But if we had a top 10 list about what makes Christmas special, gifts and family would be on the top of that list. Other items perhaps would be parties, holiday cheer, Christmas movies, lights or light displays, special holiday events. For some, eggnog would make the list. You're weird, um, just putting that out there. But we know that these things don't really make Christmas special. Yes, there's a, there's a shadow to these things, but the ultimate reason that Christmas is special is the Lord Jesus Christ. At its core, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birthday. Jesus makes Christmas special. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about Christmas and reflecting on the birth of Christ and how one child's birth could receive so much attention. Uh, As I've talked about before, Kate and I are expecting uh, our fourth in May. And as excited as we are about that baby, I don't think anyone is going to really be celebrating that child's birthday. You know, outside of our family, obviously, we'll celebrate their birthday. But I don't think any of you are going to stop on May 1st or May 8th, whenever the baby comes, and pause everything that you're doing and exchange gifts with one another because we had a baby. So, So why are we, 2,000 years later, an ocean away from the land of Israel where Jesus was born, why are we still celebrating the birth of this baby Jesus? What's so special about Jesus and his birth? Well, as we read the Christmas story, we can rule out several things. We know that there were several things about Jesus' birth that were not special at all. He was born in an obscure town, a little village called Bethlehem. His mother gave birth to him, the children referenced, a cattle stall or a barn. That's the right idea. His first crib was a, a feeding trough. His family wasn't too special either. They were from a backwoods village called Nazareth. In John chapter 1, one of Jesus' disciples say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That gives you a little bit of the stigma that was associated with being from that town. So Jesus wasn't special because of where he was from. His earthly dad, Joseph, was a blue-collar laborer or a carpenter. Again, not a politician, not a military general, no one special. His mother was probably very young, perhaps in her late teens when she had him. Neither of them were wealthy. And his parents were unmarried at the time that they had him. We know that is because Joseph was not his father. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. But to the observer, such a thing had never happened before. And in in that culture, to have a child out of wedlock would have been scandalous. So there are a lot of reasons why Jesus' birth wasn't special. But if we read the Christmas story closely, there are many things that were a little unusual, we have to admit, right? An angel predicted his coming to his mother. A host of angels announced his birth in the night sky. Foreign dignitaries traveled hundreds of miles and gave him gifts fit for a king. 
Did any of you have any of those events at your birth? Because I didn't. I'm glad I'm not the only one missing out on something, right? You didn't either? That's good. I love it. None of us did, right? None of us did. So those things make Jesus' birth unusual. But what makes Jesus' birth special? The real reason his birth was special was because of who he was and what he came to do. Because of who he was and what he came to do. John's gospel, John chapter 1 that we're, we're, we've turned to this morning, opens with these words. They're beautiful words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we consider these words for a moment, th- these words are pregnant with meaning. Think about them. Who is the Word? Well, we're just introduced to this person. Who is the Word? Well, from the passage, if we continue to read, the Word is very clearly Jesus Christ. In fact, Revelation 19, 13, another letter that John helped to write, makes this explicitly clear. His name is called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Now, notice also that the Word was God. The Word was not a God, as some cults would lead you to believe, but was truly, actually really God. Colossians 2.9 says that for in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. But yet, again, notice the verse. Though Jesus is God, he is also distinct from God the Father. He was with God. He is not the same as the Father, but is part of what we refer to as the Trinity. The Bible teaches that God is three persons in one Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Word is the second member of the Trinity, the Son. And what did this Word do? He became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And most of the ancient heresies in the first and second century talked about Jesus not really possessing a human body. And this verse sets that all straight. Jesus took on a human body. He lived in human skin. He was a real human being. And this is a core part of our faith, a core part of our doctrine. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. One person with two natures. This is what's called the hypostatic union. One person, two natures, fully God and fully man. And I've spent the time leading to this question. Because these are some incredible truths. These are stunning truths. If you really think about the fact that God would take on a human body. And it begs a very simple question. Why? Why? Why would God stoop so low as to become a human being? Why would God take on human flesh? And if we can answer this question, we'll have a response for why Christmas is so special. And so for the next couple of weeks, as we lead up to Christmas... I'd like us to probe in John 1, we'll park here for for three weeks here, and discover four answers to this question, why did God become flesh? I'll preview them for you, and then we'll circle back and just deal with the first one here in our time remaining. Why did God become flesh? John 1 says that Jesus came as a child to make us God's children. Jesus came as light to bring us out of darkness. Jesus came as life to make us spiritually alive and grant us eternal life. Jesus came forth as the Word 
to explain God to us. And so for a few minutes, let's take a closer look at this first answer. Jesus came as a child to make us God's children. There's a beautiful harmony in these truths. God became a child to become humanity's savior. So we see that the word became flesh. John 1 is very clear about that. But did he have to? Did he have to become flesh? Wasn't there another way to save humanity? Well, the short biblical answer is, yes, he had to become flesh. God can do whatever he pleases. And in his wisdom, he chose this means of sending his son to take on flesh as the route of salvation, as the plan of salvation. First Peter 1 says that this was foreordained before the foundations of the world. Well, the need for a savior from our end started all the way back in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, and they disobeyed. They rebelled. They did what all of us do over and over again. They broke God's good command, and specifically, they ate the forbidden fruit. And so God punished them, corrected their sin, and one of the consequences was death was brought into the world. And yet, in the aftermath of all of that sin, in the aftermath of all the chaos and all the hell that broke loose through their sin, because that's really what happened, God promised to send a Savior to rescue us from our sin. God said this in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, Between your seed and her seed, he's speaking to the serpent here. He shall bruise your head. That's a death blow. You shall bruise his heel. That's that's a wound, but not a, a fatal wound. Every Old Testament prophecy about the Savior from this point on brings his identity sharper and sharper into focus. Like, you know, when you go to the eye doctor and they say, you know, one or two, and you can't tell the difference. And they go three or four. And by the time you get to 12, you're like, oh yeah, that's a little sharper. Each prophecy in the Old Testament sharpens the picture of who the people were expecting. A little bit at a time. From this first promise in Genesis 3, we gain hope that sin will be defeated. Satan, though he had the first laugh, does not have the last laugh. The way God chose to defeat sin, we also learn, was through a human being, the seed of the woman. Now, that's a really interesting expression because biologically, the men are the ones that have seed. So what is God referring to here? I think this is an implicit, silent acknowledgement that the Savior would have a miraculous conception. In fact, we see that explicitly made clear in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So from this verse, we learn even a little bit more clearly that the Savior would be born of a virgin, which is miraculous. That's impossible. That's not the way conception works. Just a couple chapters later in Isaiah, we learn something else. We sharpen the focus a little more. For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So take just these three prophecies, there are more, but take these three, and we actually have a fairly clear picture of what the Savior would be like. The Savior had to be a child, the seed of a woman, conceived by a virgin. Yet at the same time, he would also be Mighty God. This was no ordinary child. This was God's chosen way. 
Because in the marvelous wisdom of God, only God could atone for sin permanently. And only a human could represent other humans. Only a human being could substitute in for others. So what did God do? God became flesh. God fulfilled these prophecies himself. God took care of mankind's sin problem himself. The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we refer to when we say the word Emmanuel, God with us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 talks about that when the fullness of time was come, when the right time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's why Jesus came. Who he was, was God and man, 100% of each. And why he came was to redeem mankind. God came to us as a child, and for us to then come to God and be brought into God's presence, we must receive the Christ child. This is what John 1, 12, and 13 explains. It says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible says that whoever receives Jesus, whoever believes in his name, will become God's child. Believe and receive. This is the message of salvation in a nutshell. Believe and receive. To believe in Jesus is to say and admit more than just he was a real person. James 3 says that even the demons believe that. They know the bare facts, but bare facts don't save Belief accepts all his claims. To receive is to embrace Jesus, to turn away from all else, to surrender oneself to Jesus, to look to him alone for salvation, to cast your hope and your faith on him, to follow him, to give up everything to know Christ, to be found in him, as Paul says in Philippians 3. That is saving faith, to believe and receive. And and, and the result is magnificent, to those who receive Jesus, John 1.12, he grants the authority to become the children of God. Sometimes we're so familiar with Christmas that, that these truths that are ancient don't move us. What we hear often leads to assumptions and assumptions leads to contempt sometimes because they're common to us. And this is anything but common. The fact that God would become a man, that's uncommon. And why did he do that? So that we might become his children. And whether you attend this church regularly and have never been converted, or perhaps this is your first or second time here, you must believe the gospel. You must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. Because he didn't remain there as a child. None of us did, right? We're all grown up, at least in body, if not in mind and spirit. And when Jesus grew up, he lived perfectly and he died on the cross and he rose again to atone for sin. And when we believe in Jesus, we're not believing in just the little baby in the manger. We're believing in everything he did to save us from our sins. If you've never made that profession of faith, there is nothing more important for you than to come to faith in Jesus and to trust him as Savior and to say, I actually understand why Christmas is so special. 
Now, I acknowledge that many of us have received Jesus already. How can we, as part of the family, if we want to call it that, how can we allow these truths to transform us? And I want to put it under a heading of this. Rejoice that the Christ child has made you a child of God. Sometimes people adopt children from overseas. I have a couple of friends that have done that. And when you do that, you you would leave your comfortable home here in America. You would be affluent here in America, especially to most parts of the world. You would travel across an ocean or, or maybe down south to another continent. Go to a foreign land. Take one of these children and make them a part of their family. Bring them back here and incorporate them. Give them everything that you possess as part of the family. And that, in a, in a very small way, is what Jesus did when he came to earth. Like the child being adopted into a family, your salvation was totally free to you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that salvation is a gift from God to be received. There's nothing we can do to barter God for it or to exchange for it or to earn it or to pay for it. It's a gift. It was free to us, but it was so costly to him. He left the glory of heaven, Jesus did, to come to the squalor of earth. He exchanged the worship of angels for the rejection and the abuses of men. He allowed the creatures he created to nail him to a cross. He submitted to excruciating physical pain. He became sin for us and absorbed the Father's righteous wrath against sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. Why would he do this? What would possess someone to go to such great lengths to die for their enemies? Love and the desire to make us his children. Why would he do this? So that we could become part of God's family. And so if you're in the family already, let me suggest two specific ways you can express your joy this Christmas. There are many, many more, but let me give you two. First, give thanks that you're part of God's family through Jesus. The most basic response to a sacrifice of this magnitude is thankfulness. We can't repay it. We haven't earned it. When you receive a gift in a couple of weeks, it would be insulting for you to to take the gift and then say, "Now, now how much do I owe you for it? If I did that with my kids, I'd be insulted. I said, no, this is a gift of love for you. All I want, really, is a thank you. I would encourage you to try to find a new way to thank Jesus each day over the next two weeks. That's 14 reasons to give thanks to Jesus for Christmas. Share those reasons at the dinner table. Rehearse them in prayer to the Lord. Express them in a small group or with other church members. Because the more frequently we express our thanks, the deeper it takes root in our heart, and the deeper it takes root, the more our perspective changes. Christmas can be a source of deep gratitude if we allow it to fuel our giving of thanks. There's a second suggestion I have for you. I would encourage you to tell others how to become part of God's family. Why would we take such a treasure that we have now and hoard it to ourselves? And one of the blessings about Christmas is that over the next few weeks, many of us, in fact, I would venture to say 90 plus percent of us, will interact with unsafe family or friends. Their greatest need is not a new pair of slippers or an Amazon gift card, as wonderful as those things are. Their greatest need 
is to become a part of God's family. So would you pray that God would grant you boldness to speak up for him? There are many ways that you can speak up about Jesus. Sometimes the best thing we can do is ask in prayer, Lord, give me wisdom to know what to say, and then start thinking, how can I bring him up? What can I do? Giving thanks, personal testimony are two for me of the easiest ways to do this. Because no matter how belligerent your family or friends are, they can't argue with a changed life. There are many ways to talk about Jesus. So ask him for guidance and courage so that you can point people to him because he is the one that makes Christmas special. And though we gather with family here on earth, Christmas actually foreshadows a day coming when all of God's family will gather around the throne and worship the Son. And we will all stand there that day because we have a common elder brother, and his name is Jesus, and he came at Christmas. So let us come and adore him, Christ the Lord.